with me. Lord, we come here this morning grateful for this day with our various perspectives and understandings of this well-familiar story. And I pray that you would help each and every one of us to see it anew. That you would illumine our minds, warm our hearts, and open our ears to hear this good news in a new and refreshing way so that we would truly know and experience you for who you are, the God who conquers death. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Easter always arrives in the springtime of the year as the grass is greening, the weather is warming, the sun is shining, and the guardians are playing ball. It's a great time of year. And we're all so busy getting ready for the festivities of family and friends gathering together this afternoon that oftentimes, if we're not careful, we can miss the whole point of what this day is all about and turn it into some kind of spiritual Sunday afternoon nap. For Easter comes as an announcement. He's not here. He's risen. That God incarnate has conquered death. And as you hear our neighbors, and maybe perhaps some of us here gathered this morning, when we think about the resurrection, I have noticed in the past few years two common responses. Number one, resurrection. Really? Dead people don't rise, Gene. You know, I don't know if that's occurred to you. God's not here. I can't, I can't feel him. I can't, I can't see him. I, it doesn't make any difference in my life. Or, oh, I believe that. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. But there's no bearing in their life or change in their life that evidences any changes from what's going on in the rest of the world. They don't live their lives any different. Because, honestly, they think the, to walk and follow as a disciple of a resurrected Lord is a little ridiculous. You're taking this thing a little too far. Ridiculous. Well, you know, when the ridiculous or the absurd comes into our midst, we rarely welcome it. Rather, we tend to tell the ridiculous or the absurd to behave itself. Oscar Wilde once said that the public is wonderfully tolerant. It forgives everything except for genius. Take, for example, the 1975 hit Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. The precision of the vocal instrumentals is stunning. The quality of the recording for that time and our time is outstanding. To say that it was ahead of its time is a massive understatement. It's still ahead of our time. There are 28 tracks on that song with four artists. And yet, what happened when Queen presented that to put it on their next album? What did the record executives at EMI say? No way. It's a stupid song. As a matter of fact, it's 5 minutes and 55 seconds long. You can't even put that stupid song on a 45. No, we're not doing it. They rejected it because it was ridiculous. Was it? Resurrection, ridiculous? Is it? 
Well, today, my friends, if you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew, you'll find it in the back of the bulletin as well as on your app on your phone or if you brought your Bible. I invite you to turn with me because Matthew, one of the disciples that was right along with Jesus, recorded this for us. And he wants you to know that, one, the resurrection is verifiable and it matters in your life. It's verifiable and it matters in your life. Number one, it's verifiable. It's interesting that here we are in the 21st century and perhaps the greatest proponent of verifiable facts and truth is the Christian church. The culture increasingly doesn't believe in facts or truth. It believes that people can create their own truth and their own facts. There's no certainty on what the right take on reality is. And so here we have the Christian church of all things being in the center of emphasis of the idea that there are historical facts that can be verified. And God worked it out that we don't have to take the resurrection just on trust, but he actually made it a verifiable event. Trust, but verify. Because you can't exhaust this book. It's a divine book, and you can look at a passage, and you can't say to this or any other passage in the Bible, oh, I've read that, I understand it. Because it's a divine book, and if you're open to it, God will speak in a new and refreshing way every time you read it or hear it. And in this passage, obviously, it's talking about the women who are going out to the tomb to anoint uh, Jesus' body because you can never give a man a job that a woman is supposed to do. Joseph of Arimathea prepared the body. And obviously they were concerned that it hadn't been done completely properly. So they went back and in Mark 16 it tells us that these women were worried because how in the world were they going to get the stone away from the tomb? It's set in that ditch outside the above-ground tomb, and it would be heavy for anybody, much less them. And they arrive, as we heard in Matthew 28, and as they arrived there, an angel was on top of the tomb. Now, to be straight and clear, it's not as if Jesus was inside the tomb knocking and asking the angel, let me out now, I'm, I'm awake. No. We need to remember who this is in the tomb. This is God incarnate. God, the creator of the universe. The God who designed the universe, which even our, our newest Hubble telescope is taking those remarkable pictures of. That's who's in the tomb. And so they arrive, and what does it say they are? Even after the angel spoke to them, they go away with, great fear they're scared to death why well a dead jesus they understood a resurrected jesus is a game changer they got there and the angel says he's not here he's on his way to galilee go tell your friends he's not here for he is risen so the angel was there to say to them, go in. He didn't let Jesus out. Because when they went in, John's gospel tells us that the grave clothes were undisturbed. 
It's as if he just passed through them. And he passed through the tomb. They weren't ripped off of him in any way. So then the women went and they told the disciples. And on their way, Matthew records, they met the risen Jesus. And then Peter and John came and saw the empty tomb as well. The stone was rolled away to let us in. So that we can trust and verify that the resurrection happened. It's true. It took place in time and space and history. And the facts bear that out. Historian Gary Habermas says 39 times, 39 different ancient sources, which aren't in the Bible, all enumerate the events of Jesus' life, teaching, crucifixion, and resurrection. Even historian Bart Ehrman says if you don't believe Jesus existed, really, Jesus did exist whether you like it or not. So denying the existence and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't make him go away. It just proves that no amount of evidence will convince you. The evidence for his resurrection is profound. We can trust and verify. He's not here. He is risen. So secondly, Matthew wants to make sure that this matters for us. And here's how we can know. Later on, if you have your Bible with you, you can see down in Matthew 7, 8, 28, 17, which we didn't read. He gets to the heart of it. Verse 17 tells us that Jesus got all the disciples together. And he says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. We know from other accounts of what's going on here. You remember the story of Thomas in the Gospel of John. Thomas goes, I'm not going to believe until I see his hands and see his feet. Jesus appears and says, here you go. Here's my hands. Here's my side. Believe, Thomas. He ate fish with them. He passed through doors. He touched them and he spoke with them. Because... Each and every one of us has said or heard someone say, you know, if God would appear right before me, I'd believe. Skeptics are always saying, if Jesus showed up, then I would have a problem. No problem at all. Believing. Believers say, oh, I wish I had more faith if only God would reveal himself to me. Yeah, and Woody Allen says, if only God would give me a sign like a huge deposit in my name in a Swiss bank account, that'd be great. <laughs> See, verse 17 proves to each and every one of us this morning that this is an eyewitness account, and I'll tell you why. Because everyone in this room has believed or does believe that if Jesus Christ showed up and let them touch him, there'd be no doubt. The only people who could ever say you can see the risen Lord face to face and still have doubts with the people who have seen the risen Lord. Who would know that to see the risen Lord and still have doubts was possible unless you had seen the risen Lord? It's counterintuitive, absolutely. Nobody else would think that. Nobody else making up a story would ever write that down. Surely the apostles wouldn't make themselves to look so idiotic. Well, the reason it says Jesus showed up and people continue to doubt 
was that Jesus showed up and people continued to doubt. There's no other reason why that line in verse 17 would be there. And the first thing Matthew is trying to tell us is all the evidence of the world cannot bring certainty to you. When people tell me I'm getting married and this is the man for me, I just know it and I'm, I'm certain about it. Or the woman, this is the best woman for me, I'm certain about it. I have no doubts at all. I say, well, you might have to live with that person for a while before you say that. I'm trying to decide whether I hire this person. I'm trying to decide whether I really believe and want to follow Jesus Christ. See, thinking alone can only get you to the place where you say to yourself, it's true. But thinking always has doubts involved. Always. And I'm sure there are people here gathered this morning among us who have said, I believe this and follow Christ wholeheartedly if I could just be sure. You need to think. Christianity is not less than reason, but I don't want anybody here to think I'm saying, it doesn't matter what the evidence is, that faith is against reason, that faith is just closing your eyes and taking a leap. That's not what Matthew is describing here. Matthew is giving us a lot of evidence. Faith is not less than reason, but it's more. Because reason brings you to the place of probability, but only surrender and commitment brings you to the place of certainty. You will never be sure until you commit your whole life to Jesus Christ. Christianity requires a commitment and a surrender of the whole person. Not just of the mind, though it certainly requires that, but of your whole life. You're never going to know he or she is the right one to marry until you make yourself vulnerable, lay yourself out, and marry him or her. You're never going to know if this is the right person for the job unless you hire them. And you never know absolutely that this is the risen Lord Jesus Christ before you commit all of your life to him. That's just the way it works. It's verifiable. And Matthew is telling you, it matters for you. Surrender and commit. And anybody can come to him. And it's scary. Just like the women. It says, with fear and great joy. For a Christian is one who enjoys a real relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through trusting him and him alone, that he or she is not merited. And this is the one great confusion of our day, right? If you ask people what do they think religion is, because they think Christianity is a religion. So I usually say, well, describe for me what religion is. To a person, they always say, religion is the path you try to follow it, and you hope that when you get to eternity that you'll have done enough for God to accept you. Well, that's religion, but that's not Christianity. Christianity turns that idea upside down. It's utterly revolutionary because it tells me that I can't make it that way. I can't earn God's forgiveness, but God has done something for me in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross 
that he offers me such forgiveness as a free gift of his sheer grace by surrendering all of my life to him. I cannot earn God's favor. I shared this illustration with you last week, and my sermon review team said it wasn't clear enough, so I'm going to say it again. And half of you weren't here anyway, so it works. All right? We think we live in a merit-based society. Universities, you get a degree at a university, but it's not guaranteed until you do all the work to get it. It works with school, works with job promotions, works with everything. And so we project that idea onto God, thinking that we must merit our relationship with him. Does that work anywhere else, though? Does that work in marriage? I shared this last week. You know, for example, my senior year in high school, I met this beautiful cross-country runner. And two and a half, three years later, I decided, you know, this woman would be a really good person to marry. So I imagine I went out and got a cookbook, and I walked up to her and said, Kimmy, I found this wonderful red beans and rice with cornbread, you know, recipe. And if you followed all the laws of making that red beans and rice, you do this at least a few times a year, and you get it 95% of the time, I'll accept you, and I'll live the next 40 or 50 years for you. What do you say? Why are you laughing? Because that's exactly the way some of you are thinking that's how God treats you. You wouldn't treat anybody like that. Any human being saying, my acceptance of you is based on your performance. No, my friends, I got good news for you. It's all been done for you on the cross of Jesus Christ. For you. And you must not only believe in the resurrection, that's conviction, but you must face the re- earth shattering, world changing reality of the resurrection. That you never stay the same. And you follow him. And it's terrifying. I know. Go into the tomb, and you see that it's empty. And you come out and you run away with joy. And by the way, Bohemian Rhapsody is 17th on the Rolling Stones' 500 Greatest Songs. 17th on the Rolling Stones' Greatest Hits of All Time. Aretha Franklin's Respect was number one. Hats off to Aretha. Bohemian Rhapsody is certified diamond, which means it has sold 10 million copies alone in just the U.S. Ridiculous? No. The resurrection? Ridiculous? No. It's true. Go into the tomb. Die to yourself. Turn your life over to him. And run with us with great joy. I'm going to pray a prayer and I invite you to pray in that you would surrender it all and commit to Jesus Christ. And at the end of the prayer, I just encourage you to say a hearty amen. And we'll have some follow-up opportunities for you. Don't hold back. It's time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
we are so grateful that we can come and we too can see the empty tomb and that it's true. You rose again, Lord Jesus, and that you, we believe that you truly died upon the cross for each and every one of us. And you offer salvation as a gift. And salvation is not merely just hope for eternity and heaven in your presence. It's hope for right now, today, that I can live a joyful, flourishing life in you no matter our circumstances. And so, Lord, we give you our lives to you to do with as you wish. And we pray, Lord, that we would walk away from here just like the women at the tomb with fear and great joy to tell others that you are risen. In Jesus' name, amen. Every relationship needs a tune-up. Marriages, husbands and wives need to go away just to get reacquainted. Perhaps you need to get together with the Lord and reacquaint yourself with him. Or maybe for the first time, you really surrendered your life to Christ in that prayer with me. Next week at 9.15, we're going to offer an opportunity for four weeks of next steps study discussions based on Paul's first eight chapters of the book of Romans. It's a little discipleship course by Randy Pope discussing how do I know I'm a Christian? How do I grow as a Christian? How can I live among God's people? And how do I serve among God's people? It's a wonderful reigniting study just for one month i encourage you to consider that shoot a text to me shoot an email to me it's all in the front of the bulletin i'm not gonna be running it rich curac will be running it here on sunday mornings and on april 25th if you're a man you can join us on tuesday mornings at 7 a.m where we're going to do the same study we would love to have you because everybody needs a tune-up with the lord every now and then so my friends let us start off our new, renewed walks with the Lord by stating together the words of the Nicene Creed found on page 7. Let us stand. <laughs>